GB. Uh, this week we've got a very exciting week in politics. Sorry about the confusion over Zoom. I can't get in on my iPad and I can't get in on my computer. Don't know why, but I'm in on my phone. Don't know why. So I'm going to admit, chair the meeting from the phone, OK? OK, uh, Jack, go ahead with a week in okay. politics. OK, well, again, apologies, uh, comrades. Um, we advertised uh, this this week's um, online communist forum. Of course, if you look at the Weekly Worker uh, with a picture of Nicola uh, Sturgeon and Alex Salmond in uh, happier times. Um, since then, of course, they've uh, spectacularly um, fallen apart. And what we've had is uh, Alex Salmond eventually, after all sorts of uh, legal argy barges and um, legal threats and um, publishing in um, the New Statesman. Eventually, we had Alex Salmon in person appearing before a Scottish parliamentary um, inquiry. Um, I listened to his speech. I thought it was a very polished um, speech, a very good, uh, passionate uh, performance. It has to be said uh, that in terms of his um, main contention uh, that there's um, a conspiracy um, against him, um, he hasn't proved that yet. Um, that's, that's, that'll be my uh, conclusion. Of course, the thing has got some time uh, to go. Um, all I would say is that um, I can sort of understand um, his hurt, his anger, his fury. Um, uh, just quoting, um, obviously, a hostile um, daily record uh, in Scotland. And uh, the writer there, Anne Brown, talks about his uh, inner wounded puppy. I think that's um, entirely uh, unfair, um, completely unwarranted uh, remark, because here you are, um, we know uh, what he was charged with. And, uh, you know, if an individual is charged with uh, 14 counts of um, sexual misconduct, including attempted rape uh, by 10 individuals, you would have thought um, that, you know, all things being equal, uh, they would be guilty. Uh, because being, you know, having one person, then it's, uh, you know, one person's uh, account versus uh, uh, another to have so many people lined up, uh, you know, making uh, charges uh, against him. You know, my reaction would have been, well, the guy must be must be guilty. Uh, but of course, what we found is before a parliamentary committee and more importantly, uh, in front of judge and jury. Uh, he was found not guilty on all 14 counts. Now, in Scotland, they have something called not proven. And so on one of the counts, uh, the jury returned uh, not proven. Now, you know, in our law, um, unless you're guilty, you're, gu you're innocent. I mean, that's the approach. So in Scotland, you can choose something we're not quite necessarily uh, convinced uh, uh, by this. Either way, what you had is a jury, right, finding him, uh, well, basically exonerating him. Uh, that's, I think, what you have to uh, uh, conclude. Now, 
again, we don't know uh, all the details. We don't know uh, the ins and outs of it. Uh, I've read the press. I've listened to Alex Salmond. I've, I've also read up uh, in terms of Craig Murray. He's a former British ambassador out in one of the stands uh, that um, got into quote unquote hot water with the British. Uh, either way, he's Scottish and Scotland's a small country. He knows these people. He's been talking to these people and certainly having read his account, I'm not saying that makes it right, but if you read his account, uh, you have to have a certain sympathy uh, uh, for Alex Salmon because it would appear at least according to that account that there was a concerted uh, effort uh, to line people up against Alex Salmon. So we have the story and he's threatening um, uh, to use it uh, that uh, two people were basically coerced uh, uh, into making uh, a complaint. Now, again, uh, we don't know the truth uh, of, uh, of all of this. Um, either way, again, you sort of, again, have to understand it from Nicola um, Sturgeon's point of view, because what we're dealing with is uh, post uh, Harvey Weinstein, we're dealing with uh, Me Too, and, uh, you know, there's a complaint of um, sexual misconduct against your former boss, against the former first minister. Uh, what do you do about it? Um, uh, do you look for other cases? Uh, again, uh, I, I can sort of understand uh, what was going on. Again, uh, uh, I'm not going to go any further on, on that one. We have a parliamentary committee. At the moment, that parliamentary committee appears to be behaving in a... Um, in a partisan uh, way. In other words, the SNP members um, on that committee appear to be behaving in a pro-Nicola Sturgeon way. We also have to say that the SNP itself is split um, over being pro-Nicola Sturgeon or pro-Alec uh, uh, um, uh, Salmon. So, for example, um, we did have uh, the sacking of um, a pro-Salmond um, MP in Westminster uh, from her um, uh, position uh, by the SNP, uh, for example. So there are uh, pro-Salmond uh, people um, uh, involved. And I think what, what I would emphasize is that there's more to it than meets the eye. In other words, uh, while this might be about the individual standing of uh, Alex Salmond, it might be about did, did Nicola Sturgeon lie uh, in front of the Hollywood Parliament? Uh, behind that, uh, what we have, what we have had, is a whole string of opinion polls uh, that show that uh, in the forthcoming Hollywood uh, elections, it looks like the Scottish National Party is uh, lined up to win an absolute majority. Uh, in that parliament. Now, it needs emphasising for those that don't know uh, the arrangement in Scotland. This was designed by the Labour Party and the electoral system was designed in such a way that it was very unlikely that any single party would ever gain a majority. Uh, the architecture uh, of this parliament and the election uh, to it is designed in such a way um, that uh, there's always going to be a coalition government. So as we speak today, Nicola Sturgeon is actually the head not only of an SNP uh, administration in uh, Edinburgh, uh, 
she's the head of an SNP Green administration uh, um, um, in Edinburgh. But it looks like, at least according to the last opinion polls, uh, that uh, the SNP is defying that architecture and could gain an absolute majority. And obviously that matters, not so much because of a particular legislation uh, that the SNP wishes to put through uh, that parliament, but because uh, in terms of these elections, the SNP is committed uh, to fighting for a second independence uh, referendum. Now, she could do that with the backing of the Greens, uh, she couldn't do that with the backing of the Labour Party, let alone the Tory party. Either way, that has been the issue. And if we look behind the personal dispute, the personal falling out uh, between Nicola Sturgeon and uh, uh, Alex Salmon, what we can detect, what we think we can detect, um, is that there's a tension there of how far and how hard you push the independence question. Not as this is what we're standing for, uh, but do you push it into the realms of illegality? And thus far, Nicola Sturgeon seems to have been determined to stand on the right side of legality. So she's been talking about a consultation referendum, which the Tories say, well, if you go for that, we'll just boycott it and uh, we'll ignore it. Uh, Boris Johnson's also turned around and says, well, you did promise uh, back in the first referendum that this would be once in a generation uh, question. Well, uh, that's a, um, how should you put it, um, a one-sided view of that quote, uh, because what Alex Salmon said way back when is unless circumstances change radically, this is a once in a generation question. Well, hey, Britain has just left the EU, something that divided the British population and something that divided the Scottish population, except in Scotland, a clear majority wanted to stay. So it's perfectly legitimate to say, well, yes, once in a generation, but things have changed. Either way, what we have is Alex Salmond, who represents those that might be tempted, this is my reading of it, and I think it's a fair enough reading of it, might be tempted or be pushable uh, more down uh, the road of Catalonia. I know that didn't turn out well, uh, but are more prepared to go for an illegal referendum. And certainly Boris Johnson seems up to play, to use an Americanism, hardball. Uh, he's up uh, for um, you know direct rule, uh, I don't know about the troops, uh, but, you know, if you go for an illegal referendum, uh, then you pay uh, a price uh, for that. So that seems to be a tension um, inside uh, the SNP. So while undoubtedly there's a, a, a personal question uh, involved, I think it's important to emphasise that behind that, uh, there are politics uh, about Scotland in, in terms of internal politics in Scotland itself but also in relationship to the Scottish Parliament um, and the Westminster uh, uh, Parliament. Um, so having said uh, the opinion polls show, well, that is until today. And what we have is the first opinion poll uh, taken in Scotland. This is after Alex Salmon's um, testimony and statement 
um, um, in the Hollywood um, uh, Parliament. And we have for the first time in 22 uh, opinion polls, for the first time, those that are saying no uh, to independence have a lead. It's, uh, I think, a 1% lead. So it's, uh, it's hardly uh, a complete turnaround. Uh, and if you actually take the, um, the don't knows um, uh, in, into account, uh, basically, it's head to head. Suffice to say uh, that the Tories in Scotland, and they are the second largest uh, party in the Hollywood um, uh, Parliament, uh, are using, uh, you know, maximum firepower uh, against Nicola Sturgeon. They're, they're fully behind um, Alex Salmond. Um, Nicola Sturgeon, if she misled Parliament, must resign. Uh, and um, that's what, in terms, I know it's a, not a long-lived Parliament, uh, but that has happened um, in the past. So the former First Minister, who was a Labour First Minister, actually did resign um, over some sort of minor uh, uh, question. It's the thing that you do in uh, British politics. If you mislead the Parliament, uh, then it's a resigning uh, uh, matter. And that obviously could do a big damage uh, to the SNP in the run-up to the Hollywood elections and in the run-up uh, to any fight uh, to have a, an independence uh, referendum. I would just add this finally um, on the Scottish question. A lot of comrades, both in England but also uh, elsewhere, have a bad habit of viewing uh, Scotland as naturally left-wing. Uh, it's something that the Scottish left always used to do. You know, when I'd go up to Glasgow or Edinburgh or Dundee or uh, up to Scotland to talk to comrades, there was this, well, we're so much more left-wing uh, than you lot down in England, you lot vote Tory. It's worthwhile pointing out uh, that that is a relatively recent development. It's true that if you take Scotland geographically, uh, the central belt, um, you know, from Glasgow uh, over to Edinburgh, which includes coal fields and steel plants, that has traditionally been red. It's been Labour Party, it's been Communist uh, Party. But the rest of Scotland uh, traditionally um, has been Liberal or Tory. And uh, in the 55 election, I actually think that the Tories got an absolute majority. Um, um, in Scotland. So in terms of the shift away from the Tories, that's been a recent thing. It happened uh, under Thatcher. It, it was something that was fueled by it's our oil uh, after the discovery of oil in the North Sea. Uh, the Scottish people aren't naturally uh, left wing. And it has to be said that historically the left, of course, has attacked the SNP uh, for being tartan Tories. Uh, there's a truth there, but again, just one other last fact et uh, for you to consider. Uh, the Scottish National Party, I think, was formed either in the late 30s, no, in the 30s, early 1930s or the late 20s. I can't remember. But it was formed from a left wing organisation led by one of um, Britain's or Scotland's uh, most famous poets, Hugh McDermott. Uh, he rejoined the Communist Party in 1956, very strange year, you might think. 
that shows you what his politics were, but also, as well as a left-wing party led by Hugh McDermott, was also a pro-fascist party. Uh, they united to form the Scottish National Party. And again, if you look at their results throughout the 1930s, into the 1940s, into the 1960s, um, they were getting less votes than the Communist Party um, uh, in Scotland. So the rise of the SNP has been a recent thing. And it's got to do with the decline of Labourism, uh, but also uh, the oil uh, question. So decline of Labourism, Thatcherism, uh, these have been the factors that have fueled uh, the SNP. All I would say in finishing is I don't think that this um, dispute between um, Salmond and um, Sturgeon um, will result in a change in, in um, the SNP's longer term fortunes. Um, I think that the conditions uh, that bred uh, nationalism haven't changed. So I think that this latest opinion poll is a blip uh, rather than a trend, um, unless the SNP splits or, or something along uh, those lines. So I think that the national question is, is something that remains um, in Britain, not only with Ireland, uh, but with um, uh, Scotland uh, too. Um, okay. Meanwhile, uh, we have uh, the British government, the government in Westminster, uh, posing as champions of uh, free speech. And um, what they're proposing to do is uh, put in bureaucrats, um, uh, basically to ensure that student unions and uh, universities um, don't deplatform what they would call controversial, interesting uh, uh, speakers. What we're actually talking about of course, is right-wing uh, uh, speakers, uh, either from the Tory party or um, biological determinists um, who suggest that uh, black people in some way are biologically inferior. Um, but also, I think, and again, I'm not quite sure about this because they don't make it explicit. And this is something where the left at the moment and the, the government have a certain crossover. That could also maybe include uh, radical feminists, uh, because what we have is a lot of student unions um, uh, basically taking the view uh, that uh, um, those like Jermaine Greer uh, are people that uh, shouldn't be tolerated because somehow uh, they put uh, transsexual people um, in danger. Personally, I reject uh, that charge. Either way, uh, this so-called champion, Gavin Williamson, this so-called champion of free speech is meanwhile uh, imposing on universities the so-called definition of anti-Semitism that is being pushed uh, by the IHRA. I mean, a so-called definition, along with all of its um, uh, examples of what anti-Semitism is, which of course turns out to be people who oppose the settler colonial project uh, that is Israel. And uh, um, if you look at why the left criticize uh, Israel, uh, that is basically something uh, that is um, um, starting uh, to um, shade into illegality. So the one on the one side, the government is posing as a champion uh, of free speech. Meanwhile, it's actually clamping down 
uh, on freedom of speech. And of course, in the Labour Party, if you actually raise up the question of why is Jeremy Corbyn still suspended, that is something that can get you suspended from the party. And of course, no one in the mainstream press, no one on the government benches uh, raises, um, you know, a, a tweet uh, about that. Uh, it clearly, uh, uh, the government is fully behind Keir Starmer and uh, Evans, the general secretary of the Labour Party, in clamping down um, on the rights of Labour Party members to even ask or debate uh, the question of Jeremy Corbyn or to question uh, this uh, EHRC, um, Equalities and Human Rights Commission report on the Labour Party uh, that found it guilty of harassment um, on the basis of the, the behaviour of Ken Livingston, and I can't remember the other comrade's name, but it's bollocks, uh, to use an Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, phrase. So we have an awful lot of um, talk about freedom of speech. Uh, meanwhile, they are clamping down um, on uh, the freedom of speech. And the problem precisely with the left is it can't work out its position. In my view, we're not talking about an absolute right. There's no absolute rights, uh, but we should uh, be champions of free speech. In our view, the best way to defeat backward ideas is in debate. Now that doesn't uh, preclude um, under certain circumstances, deplatforming someone. I've got no problem with that. Doesn't mean you don't defend yourself physically uh, if you're under attack, or for that matter, taking your defensive um, violence onto the offensive uh, and actually attacking uh, um, someone else or their meetings or, or their press. All I would say is I'm, I'm not quite sure when this became a principle, but as I understand it, again, I'm well open to being um, corrected on this. It seems to have come to Britain from France. It seems to have been the French left in the 60s that developed this idea of killing fascism in the egg. In other words, before it becomes a, a big danger, any manifestation of fascism, uh, uh, kill it, because we saw what happened uh, in the 1930s uh, and the 1940s. All I would say is we look back um, to uh, the 1920s and 1930s, I think it is worthwhile pointing out, not because they're a model of uh, a triumph, uh, but it shows you uh, something, in my view at least, that if you take the Communist Party of Germany, uh, as well as fighting uh, the black shirts um, or the brown shirts on the streets of Germany's cities, they were also prepared to debate uh, with the Nazis. And actually, the, the historical record shows that they were successful in, in doing that, uh, that the Nazis posed as anti-capitalist, and the Communist Party would challenge them to a debate. The Nazis would say, the capitalists, they're all Jews. And the Communist Party would say, what a load of rubbish. And the Communist Party won uh, those debates and won people from Nazism. And it was the Nazis uh, that um, stopped uh, those debates. Either way, it shouldn't be a principle to debate with them. It shouldn't be a principle uh, to fight with them. This should be a tactical question, but the, the basic stance that the left needs to make and fight for is debate. And this is the danger precisely uh, of what's going on in universities 
uh, at the present time is that the left is sort of joining with uh, Gavin Williamson in accusing people, for example, radical feminists uh, who critique uh, transsexual politics, um, these people are simply dismissed as bigots. Um, and I think that's a dangerous uh, position uh, to take. Um, yeah, I, I won't uh, develop the point. Um, okay. Okay, just some quick points. Um, CIA America has um, basically said that uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, he must be um, um, found guilty of um, the dismemberment killing of uh, Jamal Jasogi. Uh, well, quite frankly, um, anyone who said anything different, it, it's just impossible. Uh, to not believe uh, that, you know, um, we all know uh, that his henchmen uh, were involved in it. There's film of them. There's the travel. Uh, the idea that he didn't know um, is impossible uh, to uh, take seriously. It, it's like uh, the attempted assassination of uh, Skripal in um, Salisbury um, in England. It's impossible to believe uh, that Putin didn't know anything uh, about it. You know, if I was going to be convinced that Putin didn't know anything about it, almost, almost he's got to prove it uh, to me. I mean, we're not in a, a, a jury, we're not in a, a courtroom, uh, but everything tells you such decisions, such uh, decisions to cut someone up or to deliver poison to someone in a foreign country, uh, that decision, that, that order has to come from the very top. So America has pointed that out. And meanwhile, of course, uh, it's various minions that are being sanctioned and being barred from travel. Uh, and of course, not uh, the future ruler uh, of Saudi uh, uh, Arabia uh, itself. Well, there's a surprise for you. In the same way, we would expect, although the left needs to campaign around the question, uh, Britain to continue to arm uh, Saudi Arabia while it uh, sheds crocodile tears uh, over the failure, abject failure of uh, Saudi Arabia uh, to impose its uh, will uh, over uh, the Yemen, in spite of billions and billions of uh, uh, arms being sent to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia doesn't seem to be capable uh, of overcoming a militia uh, that's operating uh, to the south um, um, of it. In other words, you know, uh, what we're dealing here with Saudi Arabia um, is a prince that's sort of flexing his um, uh, strategic uh, muscles and, and showing how impotent uh, Saudi Arabia is, and also illustrating that the arms trade to Saudi Arabia has got very little to defend about defending Saudi Arabia, uh, everything about reprocessing uh, petro uh, dollars. That's the real purpose uh, uh, of uh, the the arms trade. Um, you know, uh, when it comes to foreign enemies, um, Saudi Arabia ain't going to defend itself. It will be America uh, with its uh, lapdog Britain uh, that will defend it uh, if it was attacked. We also have, um, in terms of the Middle East, Shamima uh, Begum, um, former British citizen who went to Syria uh, to join um, 
IS, um, Islamic State, when she was 15. Um, she went with uh, two other friends and has had uh, several children uh, since then. Um, she, at the moment, is in a Kurdish-controlled um, camp, uh, and uh, the British government stripped her of her nationality. She's a dual national. Uh, she comes from a, um, a Bangladeshi background, but has never been in Bangladesh. And uh, the British government stripped her of her um, uh, citizenship. And she's wanting to appeal against that uh, uh, judgment. And uh, the um, Supreme Court uh, has turned her down. So she's in a catch-22 situation. She wants to appeal against um, her being stripped of citizenship, but cannot appear in a British court uh, to make that appeal. Uh, and that's the decision of uh, British judges. And of course, the Tory party is saying quite right. Uh, and of course, the Labour Party uh, is acting in a completely um, you know, servile uh, fashion. I mean, from our point of view, um, she ought not to be stripped of her, her citizenship. Um, if she's guilty of uh, crimes, uh, then she should be put on trial. And that's what she says that she's prepared to do. And I think that is the correct way uh, to proceed. It's very dangerous uh, for governments to have the power uh, to strip people of um, their citizenship, um, especially in a country uh, like Britain, where there will be large numbers uh, of people that have um, a dual citizenship uh, for one reason uh, or uh, the other. Uh, the government claims that she's a security risk. Well, I really, uh, you know, um, uh, need persuading um, on, on that one, I have to say. Okay, what I thought I would do now, um, and I'm, again, apologies to comrades who've joined us uh, late. We had technical difficulties. That's why we're starting the way that we are. But I'd thought I'd use the closing session um, um, of the meeting uh, to deal with um, um, the nuclear uh, question um, because we've had an article um, 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 in the paper um, um, on the nuclear question and we've also had um, M.L. Jacobs um, coming back uh, critiquing um, that article. The first thing I think we ought to say is that that article wasn't prompted by anyone um, looking at Navarra uh, media. Um, so we didn't look at um, um, whoever's program it was, Bastani or who, whoever it happens to be, and then said we must have an article on this question. We simply looked at uh, this uh, earthquake um, off the coast of um, uh, Japan and uh, the possibility of a new leak in the uh, Fukushima uh, plant that was hit um, first time round uh, with this earthquake and thought that it was worthwhile revisiting uh, this question. Worthwhile saying something about uh, Navarra uh, media. Uh, as I said, I'm not a, a, a follower of it. I have read uh, Bastani's um, uh, book. What's the name of it? Um, Full Luxury Communism or something along uh, those lines. Uh, what this is, it's part of a school of thought 
Um, but I suppose if you wanted to draw a parallel, you would draw a parallel with Peter Struve in the Russian Revolution, um, someone who was um, in at the founding of the RSDLP, um, but basically um, someone who uh, would uh, take the opening lines of the Communist Manifesto and read no further. Uh, in other words, what Peter Struve became is an advocate of capitalist uh, development in Russia, more or less full stop. And what you've got uh, with Navarra Media, it's part of a, um, a school of thought that calls itself accelerationists. And this is the idea that if you encourage the development, the speeding up of technological development, this brings nearer um, the so socialism this brings nearer uh, communism. Um, so what you have in Bastani's book is the idea of um, full automation. Uh, what you have is the idea of, you know, mining uh, meteorites and bringing minerals uh, back to uh, earth. What you have is uh, a society, um, you know, of fun and games and uh, leisure. Uh, and uh, this is done by machines. This is done by technology. Uh, the class struggle uh, doesn't play the central role, it's the machine, uh, it's dead labour uh, that becomes the liberator uh, of labour, not living labour that is the liberator uh, of, um, of labour. Um, uh, others associated uh, with that school of thought uh, would be none other. I don't know about now, uh, but if you read Paul Mason, um, he would be another example of, uh, well, I'm a Marxist, I believe in uh, communism, uh, but the idea of forming a party, the idea of, uh, you know, the class struggle being the driver of history. No, uh, the class struggle, if it's a driver of history at all, it's the drive that makes the capitalists introduce the technology. And we want to encourage the capitalists to introduce the technology because this will bring us uh, uh, liberation. Um, Anyway, to cut a long story short, no, that wasn't the object um, of our critique. Excuse me, I'm just going to put my um, um, office lights on. I can now read my notes uh, a bit easier. Okay, so this is no uh, me going away uh, for a week, let alone uh, any longer, and uh, uh, going in for deep research. Obviously, that is something that we ought to do, and it would be something that would be worthwhile uh, doing. So th 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 these are my first uh, responses um, and, uh, and, you know, readily admitting uh, that my research isn't uh, profound or deep. Nonetheless, I, I think that the case is still there. And I, I think that the, the case against nuclear power as it exists at the present time is more or less um, unanswerable. Now, I'm not going to go into um, nuclear fusion. Um, this is something um, uh, that is being experimented with. Uh, at the moment, I think at the moment, they've just managed, I think, and I could be wrong here, for the first time uh, to actually conduct a fusion experiment of where they actually get more out than they put in. Um, so thus far, uh, what they've been able to do fusion, uh, which is what the sun does, 
um, but it takes them putting in a huge amount of power uh, to uh, make that happen. Now, obviously, in terms of a power source, uh, you need the opposite. You need to be able to put in power, but, but get out an awful lot more power uh, than you put in. Otherwise, what's the point of it? So we know it can be done. Uh, whether this can become the technology of the future, at the moment, I'm going to leave that uh, to the future. I'm not a scientist. Uh, I'm not against that uh, uh, technology. Uh, I don't think we should be against that technology because if it works, it uh, promises to bring, bring you sort of boundless amounts of um, um, energy and you don't have uh, the, um, the negative side effects uh, that you get with fission, uh, which is what a nuclear bomb uh, uh, does. Okay, so I had a quick uh, look at uh, easily available um, statistics and um, these are the latest uh, uh, figures. And this is um, uh, the cost of various power sources uh, per unit. And we're talking about maybe um, millions, maybe thousands. It doesn't really matter. Uh, but the point is, what's expensive and what's cheap? And that's what I'm going for in terms of my first line of um, argument. And what we have in terms of cheapness is wind power. And this is wind power based on... Uh, the ground. So this isn't out in the North Sea. This is up in Yorkshire or out there on the hills of um, Surrey, wherever there's a good strong wind, maybe somewhere in Wales or wherever. Uh, uh, the figures for that, and you'll have to forgive me, this is in dollars. So um, $46, just take it as that for whatever it is. Next, uh, in terms of um, uh, cheapness, is solar, and that's $51. Now, of course, we have to emphasize uh, that wind is great if it's windy. And even in Britain, uh, even over there on the um, West Coast with the Atlantic, um, you know, washing in, sometimes it ain't windy. And believe it or not, also in Britain, I look out at the sky at the moment, sometimes, believe it or not, it ain't sunny. So if you go to Manchester, it ain't sunny. Uh, it's usually overcast. Um, either way, when it's sunny, uh, solar power is very cheap. So 46 for wind, 51 uh, uh, for solar. Next, uh, we have natural gas. Uh, that's natural gas from the North Sea, natural gas imported from the Middle East, Venezuela, uh, Russia, wherever. Uh, and the price of that is 59 geothermal that's when you dig down that's usually a domestic uh, thing you can just dig down and you get heat from the earth because it's a molten core uh, that's 77 dollars then we get into offshore so offshore at the moment is a hundred dollars so considerably more uh, than wind on land so basically um, offshore because it's not an ice or out there in the North Sea or uh, out there uh, on the Atlantic uh, coast off Bristol or wherever the hell it happens to be that's about twice as expensive as onshore uh, wind farms then we have coal coal is a hundred and twelve dollars but way out uh, uh, in front is nuclear, right? These are world figures, by the way, They're not just British 
figures. I'm talking very British, I know, because I know British geography and where things are located here. Either way, what we have in terms of nuclear power is $164. So roughly speaking, three times more expensive than the cheapest uh, source of energy. Now, it's true that then if you take what we have everywhere is, well, you have your basic sources of um, energy supply, and then what you get in Britain is uh, peak demand when people get home from work, they put their kettle in, they have their cup of tea, they switch the TV on, they start cooking dinner, and then you get this spike of demand. And uh, to deal with that spike of demand, what we have in Britain is um, natural uh, um, gas uh, um, stations kick in and the price of them is $170. And we also have uh, natural gas peak uh, at $175. Uh, uh, either way, the, these, are, these are power sources that deal with the spike that we get, I think, about six o'clock uh, in Britain or, or thereabouts. Now, again, I don't know if these figures for nuclear power uh, take into account uh, cleanup. There's obviously been two big cleanups uh, that we all know about. There's been others, not including in Britain, uh, by the way, with uh, Sellafield. But of course, the two big ones are Chernobyl and uh, the Fukushima plant. The Fukushima plant, I've got cleanup operations are estimated to cost, and this still goes on, uh, between 460 and 640 billion dollars. Uh, it's also the case uh, that these figures are based on a completion time for nuclear power stations of about 5.7 years. Now we'll come to that question um, in a minute. Um, so turning to Britain, we've got the ongoing building of um, a number of new uh, nuclear uh, power plants. The government originally planned six. Uh, we're now down to three because the contractors have pulled out uh, of three of them, um, citing um, expense. Uh, expense. Uh, in order to induce these companies, they're sometimes French, sometimes they're Chinese, um, they've put in um, um, a guaranteed price for electricity that's way, way up there uh, in terms of what we get charged uh, uh, normally. So um, uh, the, the, the price that is being guaranteed by the government is incredibly high. And even then, we've had three uh, consortiums pull out uh, because they reckon it wasn't economic uh, enough for them to do it in spite of being guaranteed. Uh, this price. So we have three ongoing uh, projects, one of which is size well C. So there's a size well A and a size well B uh, that are older plants. Size well C is the latest uh, up to date one. Now, this originally was going to cost 20 billion pounds. So we're doing pounds now, not dollars. Um, since then, though, uh, the cost has increased from 20 billion to 25. A billion. We're also in a situation where Sizewell C is 10 years behind. Um, so it was meant to come into operation in 2017. That was when it meant to come on stream. Uh, it's now expected to come on stream uh, 2027. So a massive, massive uh, uh, carry uh, over. Um, 
Okay. Okay, I also just wanted to put in another fact um, et uh, for comrades to um, consider, uh, and that is the increase in the contribution of um, wind power uh, to the British um, um, electricity um, supply uh, network. Ten years ago, it accounted for 3%. Uh, that's all, 3%. Um, today, it actually accounts for 25% of um, electricity used over the year uh, in Britain, which is a massive, massive uh, increase. And remember, this is the cheapest source of electricity if we're dealing with onshore um, electrical uh, generation. And when it has been windy, um, we've even had a situation of where wind accounted for 59.9% of um, electric, uh, electric, ele electric generation uh, in Britain, i.e. Uh, nearly 60% of power coming onto the grid uh, was courtesy uh, of wind power. Now, obviously, when it stops blowing, you've got a problem there. So I'm not suggesting for a moment uh, that that's all you need is a windmill on top of your house or wind farms uh, out there on the moors. Okay. Now, um, again, talking about price, and again, we're not committed to price. I'm merely illustrating price because this is the way capitalism um, tests uh, the law of value. So it's an indirect way of working things out. But nonetheless, it's the best way that capitalism has got, got to tell us um, what's economic and what's not, what's profitable and not and what's not. Doesn't mean that we're committed uh, uh, to price as some principle. No, we're not. Uh, we've got our own um, way of approaching things. Anyway, over the last 10 years, that's from between 2009 and 2019, what's happened to the price? of various power sources. Gas, it's gone down 37%. Now, obviously we've got North Sea uh, gas in Britain uh, and that's a declining um, uh, field as far as I understand it. Um, those that think gas and oil uh, have peaked and run out, I think that's, that's just nonsense. Um, there's oil there, there's gas there. It will last a great deal of time. What normally happens though, is that it becomes more costly uh, to extract. But of course, what we have is the development of technology, the discovery of new fields, and um, all sorts of new techniques of extracting gas and oil. And as a result of that, over the last 10 years, we've seen the price of gas, natural gas, go down by 37%, which is an amazing figure, I think, for those that are committed to the peak oil, peak, peak, um, you know, natural gas theory. It's clearly not true. Nuclear power, on the other hand, has actually gone up. The cost of nuclear power has actually gone up in the same period by 26%. Now, we could go into the whys and the wherefores of that. Nonetheless, this is not something, hey, the technology is all mastered and uh, all we need to do is churn out nuclear power stations and, uh, hey, we're, we're in clover. Um, the very fact that it takes them such a long time, at least in Britain, uh, to produce uh, a new nuclear uh, power plant, you know, a 10 year overrun, and it's still got many years to go, 
tells you something about the difficulties there still are. Either way, we're gaining not just in, in terms of British figures, these are global figures, the increase in the cost of nuclear power has gone up by 26%. Coal, it's gone down by 2%. Now, a lot of coal is being dug up in China, and we're not dealing in, in many cases with the latest technology, we're dealing with old uh, technology. Um, either way, new technology can be applied to this, and it's not surprising uh, that the cost of extracting a ton of coal on a global scale um, has gone down. Um, and just again, as a, a, a comparison, I already made the comparison with solar and uh, wind, again, massive drop uh, in uh, their costs. Of course, then we have the question, and this is the communist approach to it. That's, this is why it's, it's uh, not so simple. Then we have much more hard to calculate, and that's indirect costs of the source of um, your energy. Uh, supply. So as Emil pointed out uh, in his critique of um, uh, the Danny O'Dare, or whatever he's called, um, Eddie Ford, excuse me, I'm not giving any names away, don't worry. Uh, what we have in terms of the uh, critique of the um, uh, Eddie Ford uh, article is uh, pointing out, well, how many people die um, in the nuclear industry in spite of Chernobyl, in spite of Fukushima, in spite of Sellafield, I mean, people do die. Uh, it takes them sometimes a long, long time. Um, I know, uh, you know, in terms of my own um, history as a, a young person, hearing about nuclear leaks in uh, uh, the north of England and it being denied by the authorities and eventually admitted often, you know, 20, 30 years after and some poor bugger has died of uh, radiation sickness that the government denied responsibility, denied that there was any, ever any leaks. There were leaks. We know much more about these leaks now because we're much more attuned and there are, you know, um, uh, tests and uh, all the rest of it. And if there's a leak now, it, it's pretty much um, instantly known. Uh, but that wasn't the case in the 1950s. Either way, um, we now know um, uh, you know, about leaks and we know about deaths. And what you get is a tiny number uh, of deaths um, in terms of um, uh, deaths from um, um, the nuclear power um, industry. And I'll come to those figures in a second. Um, but also in terms of another um, indirect cost, uh, there's air pollution. Um, and what you get, I think, in terms of nuclear power um, it's basically the same as um, wind power. It, it's uh, negligible. On the other hand, coal uh, is a terrible uh, polluter. And again, someone who is raised, born and raised in London, um, and those of a certain age won't forget it, is the London smogs. And uh, the big, big London smog, I don't know why they got the date of it. Was it 19... 56, 66, let me see if I've got it. Oh, the great smog, there you are. It, was in, it wasn't in my lifetime. There were smogs in my lifetime. It was 52, 1952. And there were 12,000 deaths, 12,000. And I remember coming home from school, um, you know, down into the smog uh, and then listening to the news and not quite understanding what it was all about. And just the news would be announcing how many people have died today. It was a bit like COVID-19. 
So, you know, 200 people died today because of the smog. This was a yellow, thick um, um, fog that had air pollution in it. And in London, they used to have, you know, policemen and going in front of um, buses uh, because it was so thick. And of course, if you're old, if you had asthma, it was a death sentence. And the same is true now in China, in Beijing and other such uh, cities. So in terms of uh, deaths, coal is the killer. And uh, we have uh, here, these are the figures, um, 24.6 deaths. I think that will be per 100,000 or something like that, people. 24.6. Oil, 18.4. Natural gas, 2.8. Biofuels, meant to be the answer, and they're not quite the answer that people make it out to be, but 4.6 uh, uh, deaths. Hydroelectricity, well, no surprise, 0.2. Um, nuclear power, 0.7. Uh, wind, 0.4 solar, 0.2. As M. Mill pointed out, well, that's someone falling off a roof when they're fitting your solar panels or something equivalent uh, uh, to that. So in terms of debt, negligible. Nuclear power, very, very safe when it comes to the secondary costs. And the same is true with uh, the um, CO2 emissions. Coal, massively up there. 820 tons. Um, uh, oil, um, 720. Uh, natural gas, 490. Bio, depending on what it is, between 78 and 230 tons of CO2. Hydro, three tons. Uh, nuclear power, three. This is building the plant and um, putting in the concrete and uh, all the rest of it. This is the whole package. Three tons. That's compared with 820 tons uh, by coal. And solar, round about the same sort of figure, uh, five tons. Again, this is, this is the cost in the round. Um, so we have uh, nuclear in terms of air pollution right down there with uh, wind power, right down there with solar power. It, it, you know, it's, it's negligible to the point of where you just say uh, this is perfectly safe and uh, yeah. Uh, this is a good technology uh, when it comes to CO2 emissions. And obviously, we're very concerned about CO2 emissions at the present time, given uh, global uh, warming. And so that's why, you know, governments can be sold or governments pick up this idea uh, of nuclear power, because, of course, the Tories are doing nuclear power in Britain uh, because they want to meet their um, targets uh, for zero, net, net zero emissions, what was it now, 2050, or whatever the date um, happens to be. Okay, then we come not to the little bits and pieces that come off from um, nuclear power. What we're talking about is waste product that lasts. And that clearly is a problem, because we're dealing with something that's got uh, a life and okay, it then has a half life, but we're dealing with the thousands of years. So we can be dealing with 10,000 years, but you can also be dealing with 100,000 years, which I think, if I'm right, that means after 50,000 years, it's half as radioactive uh, as it was. That's how it should uh, decay. And they can keep it in all sorts of different ways. So the least uh, dangerous is uh, held above ground. Um, when it becomes more dangerous, they seal it in glass. 
uh, when it's particularly dangerous, they dig it deep, deep uh, into geologically stable formations. So in the north of England, you've got granite type structures that basically haven't moved for, well, you know, 200 million years, that sort of type stuff. So, you know, and it will not move unless something, <laughs> something bizarre happens. So that can be done. Uh, that's certainly true. Um, meanwhile, though, uh, we've got a number of objections, and this is stand, the standard argument. What about a 9-11? Not against a mountain uh, that's got a tunnel in it where you've got nuclear uh, waste uh, buried there. You know, a Boeing 747 landing on that mountain wouldn't make a dent um, in it, wouldn't make any, make any difference. But on the other hand, um, uh, a Boeing 707 aimed at an, exi an existing nuclear plant presumably would make a difference. And okay, it's true that some nuclear plants are um, shrouded in um, concrete. And um, so if you take Iran's nuclear research facilities when it's doing uh, its um, centrifugal stuff, either it's underground or it's under concrete. And as I understand it, and again, not a military expert, if Israel was going to penetrate that, it would either need a nuclear weapon or it would need the latest American bunker busters. So America tried out bunker busters, if you remember, on the caves of what's it called out there in Afghanistan. And what was the point of it sort of type idea? Was it to get a few members of uh, Al-Qaeda? I think it was a, a demonstration. It was this technology works or doesn't work sort of demonstration. This is a bomb that has to be let out the back of something like a Hercules transport plane. It's a huge bugger of a, uh, a bomb and it's meant to penetrate deep underground. Uh, that's what it's designed for. Either way, a 9-11, I don't think is a, um, a false, um, you know, um, false warning. It's not something you can afford to dismiss. And it's why one would guess uh, in the advanced capitalist countries like Britain, one presumes uh, there will be aircraft ready to be scrambled, missiles ready to be launched uh, if a plane got, you know, went off its track. Uh, one presumes they would shoot it down um, if it was heading towards a nuclear power station. Um, you've got accidents. Um, Fukushima happened because of, um, you know, geological uh, conditions. There was a um, land movement um, and then a, a tsunami. Uh, that could have been uh, predicted. Um, Chernobyl, what was that about? Well, it wasn't geography. Um, it was called management. And, um, you know, if we're dealing with technology, uh, you know, has this um, natural hazard, um, we are relying on um, good management and ultra, ultra uh, safety precautions. And I believe, when, you know, when, when I see a video by the nuclear industry and they say, we do this, we do that, we have to have this person doing that. And we, we double check that. And if that happens, that switches off. I believe all of that. But what we saw in the late Soviet Union was the breakdown of society. So discipline starts to go. What we have is a society where the workers, I'm not blaming the workers for this, but we have negative workers control. We have reports to bosses of what we think they would like to hear. 
are there any troubles at the nuclear plant? No, comrade, things are going swimmingly. Um, normally things are going swimmingly, but if you're dealing with um, a social breakdown, uh, can you rely on that? I, I personally would be saying no. I, I, I think when there's a social breakdown, when there's a revolutionary situation, when society is, you know, um, coming apart at the seams, you're going to get accidents and you're going to get accidents in all manner of different spheres in society. And you cannot preclude uh, nu the nuclear uh, industry from uh, that. There's also the question then of nuclear proliferation. I've made the point previously that in Britain, the public was sold nuclear power. Britain was the first country to go for peaceful nuclear power. Um, so the first, you know, civilian plant was in Britain, and this was sold to the British public on the basis you have free electricity. Um, you can just plug in anytime you want, and it's free, free, free. Well, that was a lie. And of course, what Britain was really engaged in um, in this period was becoming the third, uh, the world's third nuclear power. Well, it, it isn't independent, but that's what its aim uh, was. Since then, of course, no, we have seen a shift uh, to civilian nuclear power in a genuine sense, but it's costly and it certainly isn't um, uh, going to offer anyone free electricity uh, far uh, from it. Now, in terms of new technology, I've looked up that. And again, I'm, my research is very limited. But this, this is this thing called uh, PEP pebble bed reactors. And this is when you have your power sources, not in rods uh, that go down um, and then have to be stored that way. Uh, this is when your um, uranium is uh, contained within pebbles, big um, uh, um, spheres. That produces um, no extra um, radiation. Uh, but it, it takes up more space. So in terms of storage of these pebbles, uh, it takes more effort. But what, what the builders of this new technology say is that this partic particular technology cannot go into meltdown. I presume that excludes a Boeing 747, I don't know. Either way, they're selling this on the basis that you wouldn't have a Fukushima. Uh, you could not have a Chernobyl. Uh, you would not get uh, a runaway uh, um, nuclear uh, reaction. Um, now, lastly, um, and this is something I was quite surprised with uh, um, Emil's um, article. Uh, we have um, the sort of taking the piss out of uh, the idea of um, solar power um, because you know you have to put it up on your roof. But there's also this idea of um, uh, running it. Um, from the south. Um, now, if you look at a, a, a global map of sunshine, uh, which you can find just extraordinarily easily on, you know, Wikipedia, uh, what you'll find is the world's sunniest, sunniest um, uh, climate is in the middle of the Sahara. It's sort of towards-ish Egypt, but they get something like 80 to 90% during daytime sunshine, and it's the brightest sunshine and my God, if you've ever been there, it's bugger hot. It's just like going in uh, to an oven. So if you take this idea that I suggested, um, which wasn't just plucked out of um, thin air, 
of um, setting up um, solar panels um, in the Sahara and running it to Europe. Now, okay, a communist um, project wouldn't just be running it to Europe. It would be running it uh, to um, Arab cities. Uh, it would be running it south uh, to um, sub-Saharan uh, Africa. But the fact of the matter is it's already a reality. So we actually do have um, um, solar plants um, in North Africa um, that run um, um, uh, cables um, up to the coast, under the coast, up to uh, Malta. And Malta is already joined in on these, uh, what do they call them, um, high velocity uh, direct transmission uh, lines. Malta is already locked in to these lines that go to Italy, that go into Europe, right? So that already exists. And again, we know that in Britain. Why do we know it? Because at the moment, maybe some of my electricity, because it's peak time, doesn't come from nuclear power based in Britain. X percentage of our power comes from France. And it comes to us uh, from France under uh, the English Channel, by these lines and it, it because France has got uh, a huge nuclear industry and they built it to excess and they export power and amongst those importing power um, is uh, uh, Britain. So these cables already exist and you can look how um, Norway is um, I presume exporting uh, power because of its hydroelectric um, capacity that's why I presume the line goes south uh, towards uh, Denmark. I presume it's not the other way around. Uh, either way, there's loads of these lines uh, crisscrossing uh, various uh, European countries underneath uh, the sea and uh, to a very high level of, of efficiency. And you can even find, again, this is something that capitalism uh, wouldn't do, but we could because our main motivation isn't profit, uh, but is uh, human need, and that would include the environment and CO2. There was a proposal, which is called uh, Desert Tech, uh, to set up a huge operation uh, in the Sahara and to run uh, lines uh, over to Europe. And it was abandoned because of the political instability and the price question um, 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 involved, uh, i.e. this was... Um, I think, um, um, what do they call it? Um, Ex-Spanish uh, Morocco and, and stuff like that. Either way, the technology is there. And that's the point I'm making. Now, of course, uh, that goes off when the sun stops uh, shining, then you have to have batteries. What the technology here is involved is uh, towers of uh, molten uh, salt, uh, then driving a, um, a, a generator and then uh, delivering uh, electricity. Anyway, all I'm saying is that the debate ought to uh, um, uh, continue. Um, as I said, I, I wouldn't rule anything um, out, uh, but it does, it does uh, take an awful lot more to me to convince me of um, the nuclear case than once you've got it going. And if you exclude startup costs and you exclude uh, decommissioning 
costs and you exclude everything else, then it's very cheap. Well, yes, it is very cheap if you exclude everything else, but you can't exclude everything else. What's becoming cheaper, what's had a remarkable um, 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 development is precisely um, solar power and uh, wind power. And so rather than going for mega technology, it would seem that, uh, you know, smaller solutions, including these um, solar stations in um, um, Africa, uh, are much more suitable uh, for the socialist uh, uh, project and for our needs at the present time. And I'll just finish with this. I don't think that what we're faced with is runaway global um, climate change or nuclear power, and we have to make that choice. I don't think that's a choice that we're faced. We're not faced with, you have to have size well B, or you have uh, runaway uh, climate change. Uh, I don't think that that's the case. The fact of the matter is that if you thought there was just about to be runaway climate change, the last thing you would do is take the nuclear option. Why? Because it takes them at the present time, that's the test in Britain, um, something like 20 years to put these bloody things into operation. They, they can't just be switched on uh, like that. So, and, and that again could be a, another overrun. So it takes a huge amount of time to get these things up and operating. When they are up and operating, uh, they aren't tremendously efficient. Are they dangerous? I would argue, yes, they are inherently uh, dangerous. New technology is coming along that makes them safer. Certainly um, fusion technology, if we could master that, uh, would overcome uh, that problem. How cheap it would be, how economic, how useful it would be, that's another question.